This audio recording is of our regular Sunday service, September 30th, 2018, at Restoration Road Church in Snohomish, Washington. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at rdchurch.com. Passages from 1 John 4, 19 through 21. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. This is the word of God. Praise be to God. Thank you for being here this morning. I'm going to pray, ask God to move me out of the way, and let him say what he needs to say to whom he needs to say it. So if you bow with me, Heavenly Father, we praise you for who you are. You are worthy. You are glorious. You are perfectly great and good and gracious and generous. And we, in and of ourselves, are unworthy to be in your presence. But you have done something. You have sent your Son, and He died the death that we deserved and lived the life that we were unable and unwilling to do. And He covers our sins, cleanses us from all unrighteousness, and then gives us righteousness. And in Christ, we stand before you. You invite us not just into your presence as individuals, but as your people. So I thank you, Lord, that you have saved us to yourself, but also to one another. And that is what we want to consider this morning, Lord. I pray that by Your Spirit that You will move me out of the way and You will speak the words that each of us needs to hear. Be them words of conviction, words of comfort, words of encouragement, words of instruction. But bring us all to the place, Lord, where we see our salvation in Jesus and where we find our hope beyond this world in the return of our Savior. And I pray until that day, the day we return to Jesus, or Jesus, you return to us, that we will serve you with all joy and will not be distracted by this world, but will be commissioned to go into it to proclaim your name. And that is why we are here this morning. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. So we have uh, spent the last few weeks in a series, five-part series, about Christians, specifically about what Christians believe beyond what Christians actually say. And we're trying to answer the question, how can I know I'm saved? Which is not a question that perhaps we ask ourselves often, but one that Paul has kind of challenged us to ask. So we're using 1 John, the first epistle of John, as our test, to test ourselves, to see whether we are actually saved, whether we are in the faith. And so if you are a Christian, this is a challenging book of the Bible for you, a challenging, hopefully, series for you. If you're not a Christian, then you are listening, you are hearing what it means, hopefully, to be a Christian. Salvation, this thing we call salvation, is this undeserved unearned invasion of God's love 
towards sinners through Jesus Christ. That's what we mean when we say salvation. There's a saving going on, and there's a Savior that's actually doing it. Belief in that love, that saving love, not only changes us, makes us new, but it begins to control our lives. It becomes the governing power in our lives. This isn't something I'm making up. It's something Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians. He wrote it really plainly in chapter 5, verse 14. He says, For the love of Christ controls us. What a powerful word. The love of Christ is controlling me. It's governing me. It's directing me. Why? How did that happen? He says, because we have concluded this. Come to believe certain things. And he namely means the Gospel. He says that one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. And a couple verses later He'll say, if anyone is in Christ, He is a new creation. Brand new. Now, the implication in Paul's statement about being controlled by this love, the implication is that before someone is in Christ, before salvation, something or someone other than Christ is governing how we live and who we live for. Now, the love of Christ doesn't just improve something that was kind of off in us. It doesn't just make us a better version of ourselves. It completely changes us. Consider how the Bible describes this kind of change. The images that it uses. Elsewhere in the Bible, it describes this change as receiving sight when you were blind. So imagine that experience. You've been blind your whole life and suddenly you have sight. That's not just like, oh, I can see now. It's amazing. If you've ever watched some of those YouTube videos where people never heard at all, and then they get their like wires or something put in there where they can hear, and they, a child hears his mother's voice for the first time, or, or a father uh, is able to hear his wife or his child for the first time. It's amazing. This is the kind of change. It describes it as a change of you were dead and you've been born again. Describes the change that you had a heart of stone, a rock in your chest, and now you have a heart of flesh filled with God's Spirit. This is the kind of change we're talking about. So when I say like when someone is saved, I'm like, well, you know, when someone just decides to be a Christian. No, when Jesus invades their life and transforms them. Something happens. Amazing. According to John, this love, the love of Christ changes us so dramatically because God, who is love, comes to dwell in the heart of a believer. Abiding inside by His Spirit. And this indwelling marks our redemption. It marks our forgiveness. It marks our deliverance from death and the domain of darkness 
and are transferred into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of Jesus and the author of life. And so today we're going to consider another distinguishing mark of that change, of that deliverance. And John uses this same life and death language in 1 John chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in chapter 3 a lot. So you just want to open there and I will reference a lot of verses. But in chapter 3, verse 14, he says this, We know that we have passed out of death into life. That's the question. How do I know? So John is so plain, so direct. The, the thing that's so challenging about John is that there's no mincing words. It's not, it's not difficult to understand what he means. He says, we know that we have passed out of death into life. We know we are saved. We know that we have gone, gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We know because we love the brothers. I'm not suggesting this is the only distinguishing mark, but I'm saying that's probably not the mark we think about when we say, I know I'm a Christian if. It says, if we love the brothers. He continues, whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So up to this point, as we've gone through this series, we've considered what we believe about God's Son, Jesus, and what we believe about God's holiness or our sin, and what we believe about God's Word. And it could be said that Really, thus far, we have argued that those who are saved by God love Jesus and love His ways. It's a really simple summary. Love Jesus and love His ways. Now today, in what is our fourth of five kind of test questions about whether or not we're in the faith, I want to consider what we actually believe about God's people. Whether we Love the brothers and what that means. So it's important as we think about that to figure out who the brothers are. Who are the brothers that I'm supposed to love? I would argue it's the brothers and sisters that we're supposed to love. Who's John talking about? Well, as you read through the New Testament, and you should annually, if you've never read through the Bible one time in your life, you should read through the Bible at least once in your life, but I would encourage you to read it through every year. We have the reading schedule on the back of those sermon cards to help you. Read five chapters or five days a week, um, and you'll get through the whole Bible once a year. But if you read through the New Testament, particularly books like Ephesians and, and Romans, you're going to find lots of terms that are used to describe this salvation. A lot of T-I-O-N terms. T-I-O-N, shun, 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 shun. You guys know that, right? Schoolhouse Rock, I'm an old English teacher. You should know T-I-O-N, the shun song. It's amazing. A lot of shun words here. Describe salvation, right? Regeneration, redemption, justification, sanctification, restoration. All these shun words to describe salvation. 
And interestingly, if you take those words, most of them feel very individualistic and very personal. I don't mean that in a horrible way. I just mean that's how they sound and what they really mean. And some years ago, and it might have been many years ago, but some years ago, the phrase, my personal relationship with Jesus, became very popular. And it became, in many ways, synonymous with what it meant to be a Christian. If I'm a Christian, I have a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, used rightly, that phrase, my personal relationship with Jesus, it does correctly speak about this biblical idea of reconciliation with God through Jesus. In many ways, it's helpful to push against kind of that coldness of religion, right? The coldness of maybe tradition and push towards the warmth of relationship. That's not a bad thing. That's a, that's a good thing. And so used rightly, it can be a good thing. But then, when we talk about my personal relationship with Jesus, if used wrongly or taken too far, maybe in the other direction, it personalizes salvation so much as to make it completely individual and our relationship with God individual. It's unhelpful in how it separates the relationship with God and our relationship with one another because the Bible doesn't do that. It encourages us in some bad ways, maybe to take all matters of spirituality, not only to be personal, but also to be private and authoritative. You've probably heard that kind of thing, like, well, that's your interpretation, but not mine. That's your experience, but not mine. That's where it gets bad. So there's an important, albeit I think uncommon word, term for salvation that I think we should consider today, and that's the term adoption. I'm sure you're familiar with the term or the word adoption. There are people in our church that are very actively involved in the foster care system and caring for the orphans of this world, of which I've been told if every family in the church adopted one child in the state, there would no longer be children to adopt. Pretty powerful. There are those who have been called to the ministry and who have blessed many children and bringing them into their homes, either temporarily and some permanently through adopting. But the Bible uses adoption language to describe our own relationship to God in salvation. In Galatians 3, but also in 4, it says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And more times than I can count, the Bible describes us as children of God. Adopted children of God. Adoption is a legal term, but it's also a relational term. It's kind of like this idea of covenant, right? We talk about covenant often, covenant of marriage and different covenants in the Bible. And the idea of covenant, like adoption, 
is this relationship that's more intimate than a contract, but it's more binding than just a simple association. Right? There's a unique relationship that is created by this thing called adoption. So when God saves us, we're not only saved to Jesus, we're saved into His family. We are not just sons and daughters of the King, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We become what Paul describes as this people who were once strangers and aliens, but now are fellow citizens and saints and members of the same household. The church is described more often than I can count, and more often than really any other metaphor, as a family in relational terms. So my point is is simple. Naturally, when you're asked what it means to be a Christian, what does it mean that you're saved? Very naturally, I think we're going to probably speak about our personal identity in Christ. We're naturally going to talk about my personal relationship with Christ, with Jesus. And that's not wholly wrong. It's very real and it's very good. But that's not completely a description of salvation. Belief in the love of Christ leads us to certainly love Christ and to be controlled by His love, but it also leads us to love the things that He loves. And more than anything, and you go, what does Jesus love? Jesus loves the church. Jesus loves the church. Jesus died for the church. God did not just save some persons. He saved a people together. And so biblically, when we talk about our salvation, we talk about what it means to be a Christian, when we define a Christian, we cannot do that without talking about our relationship to the church. Because that's how the Bible talks about it. Now, our main text this morning is very convicting. It may not be for you. It was for me. It's very powerful and it's because it's so simple and direct. 1 John 4, 19-21. Verse 19, it says this, We love because He first loved us. We love because He first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So John plainly says, we love God because God loved us first. I play a game with my four-year-old daughter. She says, I love you, Dad. I said, nope. I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you. No, I love you. No, I love back and forth, right? Just a silly little game. We certainly love each other. Usually I'll break at the end. Fine. We love each other. But with God, He loved us first. We did not know love. We did not want to love. We had no thoughts of love for anyone but ourselves. Love is not something that generates within us. It does not come from us. It is a gift. Love itself is a gift 
from God, something that He places in us. So the only reason someone ever says that I love God is because God first said, I love you. Now, the passage continues though, right? It says, whoever says I love God. So this declaration, not that like I have decided to love God, but that I understand God loves me. This declaration that I know God's love in Christ. Okay, if someone says, I love God, John says, if someone says, I love God, they must love their brother. Or they're not telling the truth about God. John will say that a lot. He'll be like, if they, if they say this and do this, they're lying. If they say they love Jesus and they walk in the light, but they're actually practicing darkness, they're lying. He just like, boom, boom, boom. You're like, oh. It's very direct. Every person loved by God in a salvific sense. Why do I say that? Okay, John 3.16, for God so loved the world. So in some sense, God looked at the world and said, I love the world, but in a very specific sense, He saves some and not others, right? So He loves those whom he reveals himself to, those he draws to himself, those he says, I love you, and they hear their name called by Jesus. So those who are loved by God in that salvation sense will love other Christian brothers and sisters. This one another love, right? You heard the one another passages perhaps throughout Scripture. The idea of loving one another is what Jesus taught would characterize his disciples. So John 13, if you read the Gospel of John, it's written very differently than the other Gospels. 13 is, uh, I think it's 20 chapters, 21 maybe. So it's, it's more than halfway and it really talks about the last week, few days of Jesus' life. Dedicates a huge amount of time. So in John 13 is the evening that Jesus is betrayed. He is with his disciples, having the Last Supper with them. And he does something that should blow our minds, and not because of the actual thing he's doing, but because of the person who's doing it. He washes his disciples' feet. So that's the creator of the universe getting on his hands and knees and getting dirty and washing the feet of created beings that he created, one who he knew would betray him. It is an incredible picture of humility, an incredible picture of gospel love, loving those who definitely don't deserve it and have never earned it, even those who would never, ever recognize it. So John 13, right? And after he does this, he gets up and this is what he says to his disciples. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And of all the things we could say, how will they know we are Christians? And only because you've heard the song, they will know we are Christians. By, like, there's truth to that. That's Scripture. The defining characteristic for the world to see the love and truth of Jesus is our love for one another. And that has to mean something beyond just the fact that I'm calling myself a Christian or I'm showing up on a Sunday morning. 
He says, that will be how they know you are saved. That you're truly my disciples. So John, referencing that experience that he had with Jesus, in 1 John 3, verse 23, he repeats it. He says, and this is his commandment, speaking of Christ, that we believe in the name of Jesus Christ and we love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him. By this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit who He has given us. So the question for us when we talk about salvation, am I saved? We're talking about what do I believe about God's people? If that's one of the test questions, how do I love the church? And I don't mean, okay, here's my checklist of the ways I love the church. I mean in your heart, that heart attitude you have towards the people of God. Do you love the brothers and sisters of Christ? And it's interesting because we talk about loving our neighbor. And the question that always follows the command to love your neighbor is, who is my neighbor? It's some sort of excuse to justify why we're maybe not loving to those near us. Neighbors could be lots of people, but I do know, if you, especially if you're a covenant member of this church, who John means when he says loving the brothers and sisters. There may be others, but I definitely know he means us. That's who we're talking about. Now, here's the, the challenging thing. John doesn't say that this new relationship to the family of God is like optional. He keeps saying, we who believe are commanded to love others who believe. I'm kind of convinced that many times the commands of Christ coming through letters like this speak to the various things that are super difficult for us to do. He never says it's going to be easy. He just says it's going to be right. And it's going to be in many ways, the path of joy. But as we who have kind of, as we've seen the last several weeks, when we hear commands of God, those who are saved, hear them and experience them differently. Apart from Christ, the rules of God, the commands of God, the things that He forbids and the things that He commands, we kind of like, oh man, you just some cosmic killjoy and want my life to be horrible. But when the Holy Spirit comes in and abides in us, we hear them differently. We hear them as children listening to a father convinced that he loves us. And even if they're hard, we know that they are good. That his commands are no longer burdensome. That the Holy Spirit has birthed in us a desire and even the power to obey. That includes his command to love our brothers. So if we know Jesus, and if we know His love, then we are going to love who Jesus loves. That's pretty logical. And if the Spirit of Christ is truly in us and truly causing us to love those He loves, He's going to actually empower us to love the way He loves. So we know who the brothers are. Let us talk about what it means to actually love those brothers. Like, what's that actually look like? What's that feel like? And it might be different than maybe you expect. Let me describe it three ways. First, we are to love 
confessionally. We're to love the brothers confessionally. That seems kind of weird, but go with me. In terms of salvation, we talk about the idea of confessing. You probably think of confessing like, I'm going to confess my sins. That's often the time and only time we're talking about confessing. But when you're confessing, you're declaring. And when you're confessing sin, in many ways, you're confessing and acknowledging truth about yourself. And we also, when we confess, truth about God. And I would encourage us that in terms of salvation, and particularly a relationship to one another, we are confessing something about one another. In many ways, we are confessing what is at the core of our family. What makes us family? John writes this in 1 John 1, verse 5. He says, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have this thing called fellowship. Many of us hear that word and we think, yeah, hang out with friends. It's not fellowship. We'll talk about that. If we say we have fellowship with God while we walk in the darkness, we lie. And we're not practicing the truth. But if we walk in the light as God, He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Not cleanses me, cleanses us. The word fellowship, koinonia, is a Greek word. I think it occurs about 20 times in the Bible. John uses it very frequently himself. Uh, and it carries the sense of a, it's a special union with someone else. Or many someone else's. It's a union that has a shared identity and a shared commitment or mission. And what that means when we talk about the fellowship of the church, and some even put the word fellowship on the name of their church, we talk about fellowship insofar as we confess that we are sinners saved by grace, we are not only revealing that our salvation or if our relationship with God is genuine, we're also declaring that we have a special relationship with God's people. John says that our fellowship with God is somehow connected with our fellowship with one another. They go together. There's no separating them. If you have fellowship with God, that makes fellowship with one another possible. Now, the first time fellowship ever appears in the New Testament, back when we preached in Acts, is Acts chapter 2. Peter preached his first sermon, and the church is gathered, and Acts 2.42 in particular they are devoted to the apostles' teaching. They are uh, loving one another in the most radical and very tangible of ways. That they had fellowship. And what we fail to realize when we read passages like that is what actually brought those people together. So if we think about the communities in our lives right now, whether it be the soccer teams or the 4-H clubs or whatever mom groups or dad groups or things that you're a part of, different communities that you are just participating in. The church is unlike all of those. The church has a unique community that is centered on something different. Communities today are brought together because of shared ethnicity, shared history, shared affinity, right? We experience the same things. We're from the same origins. We uh, enjoy the same things. 
But the church in Acts 2 was very different than one another. They didn't have shared history. They didn't have affinity. They were very different people. What brought them together was their shared identity in Christ. In many ways, if you took the Gospel out of their community, many of their friendships would probably just not make sense. And not that I would ever want to do that to our church. Let's just take the Gospel out see how it goes. But the truth is, if you take the Gospel out of any given community, what we see is that, well, we're not all the same. We're very different. I don't know if I want to hang out with you anymore because we have such differences of passions, of experiences, of whatever. But the Gospel comes in and creates something that is incredible. Something that doesn't make sense to the world. Something that is, in many ways, compelling. What we love about each other, newsflash, is not each other's loveliness. Now, you're lovely people. And I know I'm probably lovely too, right? But that's not what brings us together. What brings us together, ultimately, is the love of Christ in us. That's what binds us together. And that love of Christ in us is so powerful and so compelling that it actually enables us to overlook some of the unloveliness in one another. That's crazy. I know. But that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the community, the gospel community of God's people. We have different passions. We have different experiences. We have different opinions. We have different histories but we are brought together because we have the same Savior who saved us from all different kinds of colored and variations of sin. That is the compelling power of the Gospel. That is why Paul can write in Galatians that in the church there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one in Christ. It's hard for us to imagine the early church with slaves and their masters as brothers in Christ. But that's the kind of thing we read about in the New Testament of what's going on. We don't have that kind of experience. But when we talk about diversity and differences and what actually binds us together, that helps us perhaps to see that's much more than just any other community out there. We love each other with a confessional love. We have fellowship because we walk in the light, confessing our shared identity with all boldness as redeemed sinners saved by grace. But we don't just confess something about ourselves. We confess something about one another to one another. And that's where you get the other idea of fellowship. Like, as a fellowship, we are declaring that we have something to do that we cannot do by ourselves. That God has brought us together to accomplish something that we can only accomplish together I have been brought into this family to become someone that I can only become if we're together. That's what we mean by fellowship. It's like, yes, I need Jesus. And I need you. Which is powerful. And hard to believe when we look across the table and we're like, but you're nothing like me. But the Spirit of Christ is what you share. And that person has something to give you through that Spirit, to shape you and for you to shape as well. 
So we not only commit to obey the 50 plus one another commands of Scripture toward a specific group of people, we actually ask those same people to fulfill those commands with us. When we talk about the church, that's what we're talking about. What are those one another commands? To accept one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to rebuke one another, to spur one another on towards love and good deeds, to bless one another that we might all walk in a manner worthy of our calling. It's a confessional love. It's also a sacrificial love. You're like, oh, here we go. Sacrificial love. Yes, because that's the best way to describe Christ's love. It's so amazing how often we forget that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That He is the divine Son who created the world and He loved us. And considering the way He loved us, that is not man's blood alone on that cross. That's God's blood. Sacrifice. Jesus didn't merely love us with good thoughts or even good words. I think naturally, we're great at that. My thoughts are going out to you. We fill the world with more words these days than is really helpful. But our love for one another has to extend beyond words and sentimentality. Because that's how Jesus loved us. The kind of love we demonstrate toward one another is a love that actually should impact our lives. And you go, okay, let me say it a different way. The kind of love that we ought demonstrate toward one another should impact our lifestyles. Oh, hold on. That's what I'm talking about. John writes it this way in John, 1 John 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Verse 17, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed in truth. Like John doesn't mince words. It's like, note to self, don't read 1 John very often, right? Because it's just like, oh, there's no mistaking what he's talking about. I recently read that when the Bible speaks of love, it measures it primarily not by how much you want to receive, but by how much you are willing to give of yourself to someone. Now, apart from the gospel, did you know that this is how most people approach most relationships? whether it be relationships with your job, relationships in your marriage, relationships with others, what am I going to get out of this? You may not say that, but that's ultimately what everyone apart from Christ and many people who are in Christ are apt to think. What am I getting out of this? Why is this valuable to me? What's the benefit to me? Biblical love, Jesus' love says, no, it's not what I'm going to get, it's what I'm going to give. It's how do I understand what it means to lay down my life for my brothers? Are we even willing to ask that question? 
Because I'm not even sure we're willing to lay down our wallets or our clocks or anything of our plans. Now we're talking about laying down your life? Come on. Are we willing to ask the question of ourselves? Not of our spouses, not of our friends, not of anybody else. This is a self-test. It's important to understand the context that Jesus gave the command to love one another. It was after He washed the disciples' feet. And He actually said in verse 15 of John 13, I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. You should do the things that are even below you in the name of love. If you don't think that washing the feet of His creations is below the Creator, you misunderstand who Jesus is. It's definitely below Him, but yet that's where He goes. Jesus didn't save us from afar. He got close, close enough to bleed for us. And if we believe this is true, we are going to endeavor to follow example, even if we do it really imperfectly, which we will. But we're going to try. We're going to push. We're going to fight against the flesh and go, I'm going to love because Christ has loved me and I'm going to use the example He's given me and what that means is I'm going to love in ways that are inconvenient to my plans. I'm going to love in ways that impact my bank account. I'm going to love in ways Loving the brothers and sisters in Christ in ways that make it uncomfortable for my family. Whoa, 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 whoa. Now you're getting personal. Yes, I am. Because the Bible does. We're going to love in ways, honestly, that are unexplainable apart from the Gospel. That people will go, why would you, why would you love one another like that? Let me tell you about Jesus. That our love will require a gospel explanation with my prayer. For those in Christ, this is more than just a decision. It is a compulsion that comes from within. That's what we're talking about, like salvation, like something has changed in my desires. That it's, that it's actually a joy to love like this. And maybe even a joy to lose like that. To become uncomfortable. To be inconvenienced. I love that. It brings me joy. Not even possible. Not, not with just us. But with the Spirit of Christ? Absolutely. John doesn't mince words in verse 17 of chapter 3. He describes the indifference towards brothers, real needs, real tangible needs. Describes it as closing our heart. He goes, how, how, how could you close your heart to that need you see in front of you? And he asks the question, how can God's love abide in a person like that? How is that possible? Oh, that's hard, but good. The last thing that we love is spiritually. So we do love confessionally. Something brings us together beyond just our appreciation for one another and our shared histories or, or preferences. We love sacrificially, but we also love spiritually. What does that even mean? Well, many of us might be thinking when we consider the uh, blessing of material possessions to one another, 
I'm feeding those who are hungry, I'm clothing those who are cold, those types of things. I imagine we go, well, I see a lot of non-believers do a way better job at that. That's probably true in some regards and false in some regards, and it's probably sad altogether. The Apostle James does tell us that faith that doesn't actually result in some kind of works isn't living faith at all. It should move you. It should stir you. At the same time, our love for one another and our love for the world, but particularly our love for one another, has to extend beyond material, tangible possessions, things. This describes the unique love of the church, of God's people. Even John himself said that we must love in deed and truth. Notice what he says in 1 John 5. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, when you read that verse, you're probably captivated by the idea like, okay, what are the sins that lead to death? Like, that's pretty serious. You should probably know what those are. Where's the list? Admittedly, it is a hard text. And I don't want to spend too much time on that part. Scholars have argued over centuries, literally centuries, like, what does John mean here? Jesus himself talked about the unpardonable sin in the Gospels. And most understand that to be what's described as blasphemy of the Holy Spirit or the conscious denial of the work of the Spirit in Jesus' ministry, especially when the person making the denial knows better. But I would argue that what we're talking about here and even there is not a particular sin that one commits or even that you can accidentally commit that sin. When John is talking about brothers committing sins that lead to death, He's likely talking about people in the church community. So brothers who are masquerading as Christians, but who in the end have not and will not repent of their sin or love Jesus. John is stating that even if you pray for such a person, God is not going to grant life or repentance to every single child of wrath, only those he has chosen to adopt. Now, the thing about it is, I don't know how many of you can see the heart, but I can't. And so because we can't see the heart of anyone, we should endeavor to pray for every brother that we engage with and let God work out the rest. But we pray for the brothers, even so-called brothers among us, because we can't necessarily tell the difference. So now that you're properly distracted, let me return to what this has to do with love. Christians' love is unique. Because as we see in this particular verse, our brothers and sisters in Christ care for more than our material provision. We care for one another's spiritual condition, which is infinitely more important. John encourages us to pray for one another. 
to take an interest in one another's spiritual lives, to remind one another of the Gospel, and to stir one another on to the ways of Christ. We are to take an interest in one another's spiritual condition through prayer, through encouragement, through stirring, through teaching. There is no other community and no other relationships that are going to love one another this way. Why? Because it's very hard to speak the truth in love. It's very hard. And so people often don't because, oh, I don't want to lose X, Y, Z. like the very thing that brings us together is the fact that we admit we are sinners saved by grace and we need help one another and the work of the Spirit. Love is not just words. It's truth. Truth about who God is that we often forget truth about who I am in Christ that we often forget. The love of a Christian brother is different because we not only care for one another's happiness, we care for one another's holiness. And that is not a moral charge. Caring for one another's holiness is caring for one another's wholeness. It's saying there is a way that God has called us to live and it's not so you can look moral in front of other people. It's so that you can experience the joy that your Creator has for you by living the way He designed you. That's loving. And we should love one another that way. Yes, we should go out and we should proclaim the truth and we should love our neighbors and we should love the world and proclaim what Jesus has done. But in here, amongst the people of God, we have a special responsibility to spiritually care for one another. To love each other in a way that the world is not going to even think about. Who else is going to stir us toward the things of Christ? So in conclusion, we've seen who we're supposed to love as Christians. I think we've dialogued a little bit about how we're supposed to love as Christians. Now let me just end with the why. Or perhaps, better yet, how this is even possible. There are many people who say, I love Jesus, but I do not love the church. Perhaps you've heard someone say that before. Maybe you've said that before. That's... A weird statement. It's like saying that I love marriage, but I hate brides. Or I love families, but I hate children. I love heads, but I don't like body parts. I mean, it's like these, there's things that go together, right? Like chocolate and peanut butter. Like they go together. You can't separate them. Or to do so is silly. John reveals that our disposition, catch this, our embrace and our steadfast love toward the people of God. That heart disposition toward the people of God. Our brothers and sisters in Christ reveals the genuineness of our salvation. That's what he's saying. And he intentionally uses really strong words, like really, it's like love or hate. I either have to love the church or hate the church. Love God's people or hate God's people. Are those the only options? Ironically, I think some of us would describe our relationship to the church as, well, I have a love-hate relationship with the church. Isn't that weird? And what we mean by that is that there are things I like and there are things I don't like about a church, about a particular church experience. But I believe John uses this language to intentionally contrast the change that salvation brings. That even through 
difficulties, even through differences, even through just things I dislike, that there remains a deep abiding affection for the people of God where there was once indifference. Despite the differences, despite, this, despite the, the dislikes and the disagreements, we're like, oh, but I love you! Like that. If you're a parent, you know exactly what I mean. I would love to say that my children, as they get older, agree with everything I say. And that we have no differences, we think exactly like. Fisher will confirm that that's true. Wrong. But despite all of that, I love him no matter what. And the church is supposed to function like that. That when we have differences and we have disagreements, we go, oh, I'm going to work through this because I know you love Jesus and I love Jesus and we love Jesus. And we may in the end have differences, but we're family. That's the picture of the church. And that's the desire that comes from within that I pray grows in us all. But you go like, well, how do I get that? Like, how does that desire, like, can I just create that desire? No. But I would argue that the depth of our love or the lack thereof towards others, but especially the people of God, has everything to do with the depth of our understanding of Jesus' love for us. Mark Dever said it well. He said, A cold heart that does not love suggests one of two things. It has either it's never been forgiven or it does not appreciate the depth of its forgiveness. In fact, much of our growth in Christ is simply growth in our understanding of what Christ has done for us. For us, not for me. For us. It may seem strange for us to connect forgiveness and love. Like, Really? Because we've been talking about like how not to talk about your Christianity in such personalized terms. Well, let's just make it personal for a second. Do you understand how much Jesus loves you? Do you understand the depth of His forgiveness for you? That He's forgiven your sins in the past, in the present, and the sins you haven't even committed yet. The sins you're not even aware of. That He is knows every bit of darkness that you've never shared with anybody else. And he says, share it with me and I will cleanse you of all sin. I'll close at a Luke 7 because Jesus puts this love and forgiveness together. And the Luke 7 is a crazy story. Jesus goes and hangs out with a Pharisee. We always think Jesus is hanging out with like, yeah, I want to go hang out in the bars with Jesus. And like, he's always hanging out with sinners. Well, he also hung out with religious sinners too. And so he's at this Pharisee's house and a woman comes in and she's described in the Bible as a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's her title. She comes in and she takes a very expensive jar of ointment and she pours it over Jesus and she begins to cry and she's kneeling before him and wiping the tears that are on his feet with her hair. And the Pharisee whose house it is looks at her and says, you know, this man was a prophet. He would know how dirty, screwed up sinner this girl is. And he'd be like kicking her away. So Jesus hears this and he says, Pete, Peter's next to him and he tells Peter, hey Peter, you know a certain money lender 
had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and another 50 denarii. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both of them. Now, which of them are going to love him more? So Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with all oil, or head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. You see, he wasn't saying like, because she's loved, I'm going to forgive her a bunch. He's saying, no, she's loving so much because she understands how much she's been forgiven of. That is where you get the power, if you will, to love at all, particularly the brothers and sisters in Christ. You come face to face with understanding how Christ has loved you. And from that comes a love that requires a gospel explanation. Are you saved? That's a question for you to figure out with the Lord. But I would say that if you know Jesus' love, then you will love who Jesus loves and you will love how Jesus loves. However imperfectly that may look, that will be your heart disposition and desire. Let's pray.